Hey, my name's Ruben, the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. Welcome to our podcast, where you can catch up on all the messages that you might have missed, or you might want to hear again. We hope you enjoy this message. We hope it challenges you. We hope it encourages you. And we hope ultimately that it would draw you closer to Jesus. Enjoy. As I've been preparing for this morning, uh, there have been two words that have kind of been drawn to my attention that I think that we can let get into our vocabularies and we can let them play a significant role in our faith walk. And so I'm excited to talk about these couple of words for a few moments today. Um, I know thinking about them these past couple of weeks really has helped me a lot. And so I'm hoping that it will help some people here today as well. Um, as Isaac has prepared us for already today, we are launching a new series this morning called Valleys. And for the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at some moments that I think we will all come across. None of us will escape these moments. Uh, we're talking about these moments of, of discomfort, these moments where we just struggle a little bit to see the light in our situation. Moments where it might just be a statement of fact that things are tough. You know, things are tough. And, and you might not be in a season of that right now, but if this is a universal experience. And I, I think it's important that we acknowledge it and we learn how to find hope in these places and that through honoring God within these places that we learn how to come out of them stronger and more on fire for God and his mission. Uh, but that's not easy. That's not easy. And um, my task today has been to look within the book of Ezekiel. Uh, which is an Old Testament prophet, into a moment of his despair and the hope that he was able to find within it. Um, and as I've been preparing to take us through this, like I say, I believe I've been led to look at a couple of words that maybe we find ourselves saying sometimes. Uh, and so here they are. I thought. I thought. I wonder if, if you're like me sometimes and you find yourself saying these words. I thought. I, I thought God was going to use me here, but it still hasn't come to pass. I, I thought it was God's will for me to start this business, but we've had a, had a pandemic and now we're facing recession and I, I don't think we're going to come through it. I, I thought we would have a family by now. I thought this marriage would look different. I thought I would be in that job serving God in that way, but I'm nowhere near that. I thought... And maybe you can fill in the blank. I wonder what you would say if I asked you how you imagine your life to look at this time 10 years ago. I could be wrong, but my assumption is that there have been some things that you never planned for. Unexpected turns that have taken place. Plans that have changed many times on the fly. Um, I reckon it can kind of be fun to look back at what we wanted to do when we grew up. And uh, I've got a few younger brothers and sisters, and, and what I've noticed as I've been growing up is there's a bit of a trend. And when they were really young, they, uh, the things that they would want to be, be doing when they were older was like a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, you know, things that they've been exposed to a lot. Um, or maybe it was just like what mum or dad do, that's what they wanted to do. Uh, and, and then they kind of grow up a little bit more, and, they, and, and so does their imagination, right? And, and so they want to start to do some more extreme things. And, and this is the kind of age where I think a lot of Kiwi kids, they will want to be an all-black or a black cat. Um, or, or maybe they just want to find, you know, world fame for, for some sort of talent that they have. And then we kind of get up to, like, the high school age, and we're ready to leave school and by this time, I think we're just so confused about what we want to do. We're just bogged down in confusion. I think that's why they uh, invented the gap year. 
uh, and I, I was re- reflecting on some things that I wanted to be growing up. Uh, personally, I was a very self-aware kid when it came to my sporting abilities, and so the All Blacks and the Black Caps, they weren't on my radar for very long. I know that that disappoints uh, Ruben a lot. My hand-eye coordination is not to, uh, is, is, has, leaves a lot to be, um, to be excited about, but listen, you only watch a ball fly past you or sometimes straight into you before you realize maybe it's just not your gifting. Uh, And so here's what I did. I I pivoted. I decided that I would do something vastly different, something that I don't think any other kid my age was remotely interested in. Here's what I was going to do. I was going to become the news anchor for the TV1 network news. That was the dream. (laughs) I would leave school. I would do three years of broadcasting school, work my way up through the newsroom, maybe make my break covering some big international event until finally... I would take over that coveted top spot on the desk for the 6 p.m. bulletin. I can't believe I'm telling so many people this this morning. It's not the typical dream of an eight-year-old boy, is it? But it was mine. It was mine. And it won't surprise you uh, that I haven't ended up where I thought. And listen, that is a very trivial, trivial example, right? There'd be a small percentage of us here that are doing what they wanted to do in primary school, and most of us probably aren't too worried about that. Maybe we're quite pleased. I know I am. That's not what I want to talk about today, though. I want to talk about uh, today those of us who have held a dream, or, or maybe it was a calling, and we can strip profession and job title away from this. You know, something that you felt led into doing, or the plans you had for your family, and things have just not played out the way you thought they would. You know, the reality of being Christ followers is that we have to hold our plans loosely. Um, This is something that many of us will know to be true. We will never know what God might have in store for us or what the world might throw at us next. And so we have to hold our plans loosely before the Lord. The book of James tells us this quite frankly in typical James fashion, and he puts it like this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And and this isn't saying don't think ahead. That would simply lack wisdom, right? We wouldn't look after our resources appropriately or hold anything with enough weight or significance. But it tells us that we shouldn't be surprised when God asks us to do something that we didn't see coming. It tells us that we shouldn't be disgruntled when the plan changes. But I felt led as I read through this morning's scripture to talk about the grief that can come with the loss of what I thought. Because I believe that to be real. I believe that to be valid. And where we are turning to in Ezekiel today, we, we find him in a place where he is feeling the burden of this mismatch in realities of what he thought was God's will for him and for his nation and what he's watching play out. Uh, chances are uh, some of us will have a few less highlighter marks in the book of Ezekiel than we do in the gospel, Gospels or the New Testament letters. It might have been a while since your bookmark has rested in Ezekiel, and that's okay. It's likely because just by its very nature, right, being an Old Testament book that's written by a prophet, its application, its, its relevance to us just simply might be harder to come by or at least to decipher. Of course, we we believe all Scripture to be God-breathed and true, an integral tool to getting to know our God better. In an increasingly broken world, we've got to hold to every page of this book. 
But if we're honest as, as everyday Christians who maybe don't know the Greek and the Hebrew and haven't spent years in, in seminary, this section of our Bible, it might be a bit more mind-boggling and confusing than other parts, and I hope that's a fair assumption to make. Uh, but I have loved getting stuck into Ezekiel in my preparation, and I, I want to encourage you this morning that because our God doesn't change, uh, I, I, because our God doesn't change, we can be certain that even though our context has, has shifted a long way from the original text, there is so much to learn about the character of God uh, through this passage this morning. But, uh, but I recognize that it might be less familiar to some of us, and so I just want to set the scene a little before we jump in. So Ezekiel is found in the Old Testament, and he is living in Jerusalem. We believe him uh, to have been from a lineage of priests, and this is what he would have been training to do also. And when we first meet Ezekiel in Scripture, he is sitting down by a river, and he is 30 years old. And that number is relevant because 30 was the age at which a training priest, that was when they would begin their life of service in the temple. Uh, but when we first meet Ezekiel, he is, he is by this river, and that is not his current reality. Uh, rather, Ezekiel had been taken away into captivity by the Babylonians, taken out of his city, his, his nation, his place of ministry, and, and put in the hands of a foreign nation. This is not how Ezekiel would have thought his life would be looking right now. Uh, but in this moment by the river, God reveals himself to Ezekiel in a way he hadn't experienced before. And he gives him a vision of God's glory sitting on a throne, and that throne is resting on a cloud, and there are four living creatures. And Ezekiel just paints this incredibly vivid image for us where God shows his glory to him. Ezekiel says it was such an incredible sight that he just fell face down on the ground. But God then he instructions, instructs him to stand up and he starts to speak to Ezekiel and he, he, he says, Ezekiel, sorry, he tells Ezekiel that his job will not be as a priest, but he instead commissions Ezekiel as a prophet. And he tells Ezekiel that he will use him to warn the Israelites of the destruction that would come if they continued in their sinful ways. And so Ezekiel begins out on his prophetic mission as God continues to give him instruction to do so. And then when we come to chapter 11, where we're going to open up to today, God is showing Ezekiel the terrible things that are happening back in Jerusalem. He shows him how the people of Jerusalem have become comfortable in their sin. And they believe that they are safe from God's judgment within the walls of their city. But God tells him of the judgment that they will face. And when we get to our opening verse, verse 13, we see Ezekiel kind of break his composure for a moment. And we watch him cry out to God over what he is seeing. And so we're going to jump into our scripture and we're going to start in, in verse 13. Says, while I was still prophesying, Palatiah, son of Beniah, suddenly died. Then I fell face down on the ground and cried out, O oh, sovereign Lord, are you going to kill everyone in Israel? Then this message came to me from the Lord, Son of man, the people still left in Jerusalem are talking about you and your relatives and all of the people of Israel who are in exile. They are saying, those people are far away from the Lord, so now he has given their lands to us. Therefore, Tell the exiles, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. 
When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols, and I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. But as for those who long for vile images and detestable idols, I will repay them fully for their sins. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. So here we've found Ezekiel at the lowest of lows. He's in captivity. He's separated from the nation he thought he was going to serve in as a priest. And he thought the plan would be that he would appeal to God for the sins of those in Israel. He would deal with the sacrifices coming into the temple so that the people could be made right before God. But here he found himself in Babylon in the hands of the enemy. And he was hearing of the people of Israel falling victim to their sin and facing their punishment. And God is telling him, Ezekiel, it's going to get worse before it gets better. So it's no wonder, you know, in this moment he cries out in despair, God, why? Are you just going to kill everyone in Israel? But in verse 16, we saw how he responded, and he responded with hope. He said, Ezekiel, I know it's tough, but I offer you something that those who are violating my temple, they don't have. And that's hope. And church, as we we begin our series on valleys this morning, I, I want to remind us that we've got to hold on to hope. We cannot afford to water down hope to our mere circumstances. We have to believe it to be a supernatural sustenance that preserves us within the battle that we're facing. In a a book by Timothy Keller called Making Sense of God, he lays out why, you know, optimism and, and positive attitudes, they simply won't cut it. And he says this, he says, secular optimism has been a disaster for the human spirit. Because it weakens our ability as people to face difficulties and suffering, and it doesn't move people to sacrifice immediate pleasures for a larger purpose. It weakens the spirit of sacrifice. He's pointing out here that the loss of hope not not only takes away our peace, but without hope, our behavior will become rash and unwise. We won't think toward the greater plan. And then he goes on to say that secular optimism cannot provide any effective antidote to despair. He says there, um, but there, he says there is an alternative to secular optimism that's rooted in seeing progress, and that's hope. Real hope, he says, does not demand a belief in progress at all. Real hope cannot be defeated by adversity. Why not? Because hope doesn't require a belief in progress, but only a belief in justice, a conviction that the wicked will suffer, that wrongs will be made right, that the underlying order of things is not flouted by impunity. And he says that this hope that stands up to and enables us to face the worst will depend on a faith in something that transcends this world and is not available to those living within a worldview that denies the supernatural. I don't know about you, but I need that hope. Because our circumstances, they might fall apart just as quickly as the rest of the world. But in moments of despair, when we find ourselves in circumstances where we're saying, God, I I thought... It'll be because of a faith in a supernatural, an all-knowing, an all-powerful God that there is one thing that we never have to lose, and that is hope. Nobody can take that away from us. It will never run out. Jesus provides us with our hope. 
And it's this hope that God was offering to Ezekiel in our passage when he says, you know, although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. This is him saying, I will be with you in this moment. And then he says, I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols, and I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. This is where we read the prophecy of the coming Holy Spirit, which has now been offered to us. And he says, I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. Wow. Hope. It's what he offers us. He, he tells us we don't have to sway with the restless pendulum of our circumstances and our emotions, but we can hold firm to the hope of restoration, that he will come back and he will restore justice. And he says that in the meantime, we don't have to have a spirit of fear because the spirit that now dwells within his believers has given us a spirit of power and of love and sound mind. What a gracious God we serve that he would take the time to renew the spirit of hope in Ezekiel in this moment. And he's willing to do it for you in your valley as well. But I, I want to look at what sparked this deposit of hope into Ezekiel's life. And it started with him crying out to the Lord, getting honest with the Lord. You know, in a world of so many distractions and thousands of self-help books and engaging content online, so often I think we can try and self-medicate ourselves through our hurt, through the grief of what we thought should have been. But those of us who have been around to experience a couple of valleys, will, we realize it all falls short of any sort of substance. And so let's start crying out. And getting on our knees to the God who, you know, who split open the seas for his nation to walk through it like a highway. The God who used a runty shepherd boy to slay a giant. The God who healed the sick with just a touch of his robe. The God who, who took an anti-Christian activist called Saul and showed him what freedom could look like and used him to build the Christian church. Let's call on that God. Let's call on that God. Let's, let's cry out. It might look undignified, it might not look or sound pretty, but the alternative is that we run to things that won't last and won't sustain. Let's cry out to him. And it, it, it sounds simple, right? And it is. It, it's simple, but, but when we're battling with the words, I, I thought sometimes it's not easy because we're trying to come to terms with something that we thought he would do differently and that hurts. See, it's simple to come to God, but it doesn't always feel easy. But we have to know that he is the only place that we will refine the hope that he so willingly offers to us. And it's a matter of just dropping our pride and our hurt and crying out to God in whatever way we can and saying, God, I come to you broken, but would you remind me of what your plans are for me? Would you remind me of who I am in you? This is the, the start of a series called Valleys. And Ezekiel had, had found himself in a valley of despair for what he saw was happening in his nation and for what he thought should have been, and he, he cries out to God. And we use valleys as a, as a metaphor for those moments of real hardship and discomfort, the moments of, God, where are you in this? But I, I want to play out this metaphor a little further, and I just want to picture ourselves in a valley. 
and I want to think about what is it about that valley that makes us uncomfortable? I would say that the most obvious thing about a valley is that it keeps out light. You know, it's high and it's steep sides keep us in the dark, and it's so easy to lose sight of the greater picture of where God has us moving towards. And I think that often the enemy who, let's not forget, is out to steal our joy and our peace. I think he, he likes to capitalize in these moments that we find ourselves in the valley. And he'll try to have us lose sight of our hope. Because I think he realizes that if he could have us lose sight of hope, we will begin to start making those short-sighted and rash decisions that we make when we begin to panic. See, because when we lose sight of hope, we're unable to see the purpose of the valley. And so we use all of our energy and all of our might to try and get ourselves out of this place of discomfort. And we will, we will start to scale up the sides of the valley we're in and look for quick escape routes that might just get us from this place of despair and unhappiness. But I, I want to extend this metaphor of the valley out a little further because so often when we think about the valleys, we think about the darkness and we think about the, the high sides that block the light and, and we think of the cold temperatures. And in doing so, we, we forget about the better characteristics of a valley. We can easily forget that actually those high sides will often be a great source of shelter from the weather above. They can shelter you from the, the harsh winds that whip across the tops. And it's easy to forget about what runs at the, the bottom of the valley floor as well. You know, the, the steep sides of a valley, they don't allow for much rainfall to absorb into them. So the water will run down and it catches on the valley floor. And so what we will find at the bottom of the valley are beautiful running streams that provide a source of life to all those who come and drink from them. You know, and this is not biblical exegesis by any means, but I, I do, I love the imagery that we can get we get from Ezekiel sitting by that river in chapter 1. He's held in captivity. His 30th year looks nothing like how he thought it would. He is grappling with the circumstances he finds himself in. He's hurting about the state of the nation that he has been given, this God-given passion for. He's broken. And I love that it was by the river that God came to bring him renewed hope and show him new purpose for a new season. And what did God do when Ezekiel came to the river? He started by reminding Ezekiel who he was. He showed him the glory and the majesty of God the Father. And he uses this intimate and vulnerable moment of isolation in Ezekiel's life to restore hope and give him, give him purpose. He says, Ezekiel, it might not look how you, how you thought it would, but I have new purpose for you. I, I need you to be my mouthpiece for my nation, and it won't be easy. They'll have stubborn hearts, but your joy and your delight won't come from the outcomes. It'll come from keeping my law and the hope that I'll offer to you. Some of us here might be walking through a valley at the moment, and maybe you resonate with that idea of what I thought. You know, that, that grief that's associated with the loss of plans could be a whole host of things. It could be the dream you had to have a family or to serve God in a business or, or through an area of study. Maybe it's the loss of people you loved. I don't need to spell it out. If, if you're in this place, you'll know. None of us will be, be void of some valleys in our lives. They are inevitable within the world that we live in. And, and some of you may have faced terrible and unjust scenarios that God has had no hand in orchestrating. And I'm so sorry that you've had to go through those things. And we would love to pray for you, find out how we can journey with you in that. Please don't leave without doing so. 
But I believe God's given me a message to say, please don't let the valley distract you from the hope that is running through the valley floor, that has come to provide for you where you are and remind you of your purpose and your worth and of the justice that will ultimately prevail. And don't let the valley distract you from the intimate moment that God is providing to prepare you for the exposure that you will face as you walk out of this valley. Come and sit down by the stream and drink from the water of life. Since the time of Ezekiel, we now get to experience the presence of God in a far more everyday fashion. We can experience His presence wherever we are through the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. I've been learning about that the last few weeks. And it's His presence that will be the sanctuary that He provides for us and the stream of hope that He offers to us in our valleys. When we enter His presence and drink from the water of life, He will remind us of His goodness, His divinity, and His authority. He will remind us that He has been faithful and is faithful and will never stop being faithful. He will repaint that picture of eternal hope that we might have allowed to become blurry in our minds. He won't just give you mere optimism or a good attitude, but sustaining hope. And then much like Ezekiel, He'll ask us to stand back up and get on with the job. This hope is not for us to sit idle with until the day he comes. It's to give us the strength to find the way out of our valley and walk out with a newfound knowledge of the Father, walking into his plan that is so much better than anything we could scheme up. I'm going to close up very shortly. And, and uh, you know, I, I've... I've wrestled all week with how, how God might want this to end up this morning. And if I'm honest, he only really showed me yesterday morning. And I love God's sense of humor because uh, I was running beside the Manawatu River when he, when he showed me this. But what he highlighted to me was that, you know, the pain that Ezekiel was dealing with in this valley, it was personal to him. And he felt it deeply. But it came from a place of despair for what was unfolding in his nation. And as Christ followers, we are called to continually pray that our hearts would break for the things that break the heart of the Father. And Ezekiel was being shown visions of the destruction that Jerusalem was to face in the coming days. You know, this was the place he'd given his life to serve. And so watching this, it was breaking his heart. Um, Many economists and sociologists have come together to agree that the generation that's growing up in our country now will be the first generation in many uh, where they grow up without the view that their life outcomes will be better than the last. The last few generations, they've watched health outcomes increase. They've seen technology develop at a rapid pace uh, that's aided our education and communication and health systems. And we shouldn't gloss over the fact that during these times, there's also been plenty of hardship. But Sociologists say that within society, there's been this general belief that the world was moving forward, that the next generation would have it better than the last. And they say this current generation is the first in the while where they, they haven't seen that as the case because, you know, young people, they've been scrolling through their phones and they're being fed information about a planet that's feeling the burden of misuse. They're looking at a pandemic that's caused widespread economic difficulty and social division. We have major factions and in international relations that are showing unrest and we're seeing the mental health of our people in a rapid decline. And I don't mention any of that to start a, a big conversation or to get caught in the hype that, that our world is going to the pack or any of that. But ultimately, church, what we're seeing, and it's nothing new, but what we're seeing is that ultimately secular optimism caused by secular progress cannot and will not replace 
real and sustaining hope. Our world is desperate for some real and sustaining hope. And those of us with a belief in Jesus Christ and the saving power of Jesus Christ, we have it. But to share it, we've got to know it. And so please don't let the valley cause you to forget it. Get yourself down to the river of living water. Let him remind you of what it's like to know the one with the perfect plan for you. The, the, the church that I grew up in had, a, had an association with a, a drug, and, drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. And um, about once a month, they would hold these kind of mini church services at the center. Uh, and I would go down with my dad and some of his friends, and we would help to run some music during these services. And, and every time we went, we would sing the song, Amazing Grace. And, uh, and I remember that these people who had come from, you know, incredibly rough lives, living in all sorts of difficult environments, they'd been slaves to addiction. They would come in and they would sing this song so loud and the room would just erupt. And, and, and you know, I, I never really understood that as a young guy because to me that was a bit of an old funny dud song that I'd heard a million times. But what I realize now is that I was witnessing broken people hear about and experience hope, real hope for the first time in their lives. And it took over them and it gave them passion and excitement. I think the temptation in a valley is to, to hide in the shadows and wait for the difficulty to pass. But we've got to get to the river and, and drink the living water so that God can remind us of what real hope looks like. Reignite us with that passion and that longing for justice that he first gave to us. There is a hurting world out there that needs us to get to the river, get in his presence so that we can tell them of the light that we know. It's this hope that we've been talking about that will allow us to look at our, our thoughts and look at what's going on in the world around us and still be able to say, Say it how Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not, uh, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Or say it how, how David so famously put it, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Thanks for listening to the Crossroads Church Podcast. If you'd like any more information on our church, how to give, or maybe after today's message you'd like to talk to someone, you can find out everything you need to know on our website, which is crossroads.co.nz. Make sure you click subscribe on this podcast so you don't miss out on new content. Thanks for stopping by.